Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Resounding. I love it. My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. My Bible has finally got to that point where it's losing important pages. Um, and I was going to give you some kind of like, you know, overly spiritual thing, like see a Bible that's falling apart and there's a Christian that isn't or something like that. But I, well, I did it anyway. <laughs> but uh, I will, yeah, hopefully purchase a new one. We're going to read in a second from Acts chapter 5. Man, we had a, a weekend in the Walton household. Uh, we had one of those moments where one of our kids uh, got, got kind of sick. We uh, had little Gigi there. She, she suddenly, her breathing got really labored and had one of those parental panic moments where I dashed her off to the hospital um, because she just wasn't really responding to me. Uh, and what was amazing to me was we live in this incredible place where there's a hospital right down the road that you can get to in four minutes, and that is a joy. Uh, and what amazed me in this moment as well is the resilience of a child that gave her one of these breathing things, uh, and she went from not really responding to me, me struggling to get her to answer, to eating popsicles with like a joy that was unheard, unseen before in her. She was uh, within seconds. Um, so we were thankful, but it was one of those moments. She's like, wow, life is stressful, and life with kids is even more stressful. So if you are a stressed parent, stressed grandparent, if you are a grieving parent, if you are many of those things, um, man, my thoughts and prayers are with you today because I needed them this weekend. Acts chapter 5 is what we're going to jump into. We've been following this community that's developing, and one of the fascinating things about this book, Acts, is, is yes, on one hand, it's the apostles that are doing these incredible things, but not really through their own power at all. They are doing it because they are empowered by this Spirit. But another thing that I find just compelling about this Acts community is, is this, they look like Jesus. Jesus lived in a particular way, taught particular things. He had a way of living in the world that was different. As he sketched out what his mission would be, he said things like, I have come for the poor, for those on the margins. I have come to release prisoners. I have come to create hope in the hopeless. So when we look at Jesus and see how he acts, we should look at this group and say, oh, that's interesting. They act like that as well. And hopefully at some point we get to this place as a community where we look around us and say, is that how we live in the world around us? We have a big sign that says living in the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. To the extent that we do that, to the extent we take what he did and copy him, we are thriving and successful as a community. And to the extent that we miss it, well, we need to catch it. We are a community called to what, what the book of Acts calls it is bear witness and that doesn't just mean tell people that Jesus died and rose again. It doesn't even mean just potentially die for your faith. And the word witness simply is the word martyr in Greek, which raises that possibility that this might cost you something. But we are also called to take how he lived and display it to the world. The longing for this community is we get to reflect him. And so as we've tracked through the book of Acts, we're seeing this community develop and start to shape. Last week, we looked at this interesting way that the, the religious leaders around them acted out of power, and this community chooses to act without power. They choose to turn to an alternative kind of power. And now we get to read chapter 5, which, man, this is a text. 
Hold on to your seats because this is a tough one. Acts chapter 5, now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to humans, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And now if we were in an Anglican church or something of that tradition, I would say to you, this is the word of God for the people of God. And you would respond, thanks be to God. And you may question, is that the appropriate response to this text? A better response may be something like, God, help us. This is a text that is full of just struggle, and yet this is the text we are called to read, and this is the one we will enter into today. So let us pray. God, as we handle a text that is difficult, a text that might even be repulsive to some of us, a text that may make us question many things about what we believe, perhaps a text we would like to remove from these writings. God, as we wrestle with it, would you use it to shape us as individuals and as a community. I, along with my brothers and sisters, I give you my heart and ask you to transform me and I pray the same for them. Wherever we are on a journey of faith, would you speak and would we listen? Amen. You wake up one early morning, sun is bright outside and you do what you've done every day for some weeks now, you go and you join this community that is increasingly being called The Way. It's a group of people that have followed and gathered around the teachings of Jesus. And even though people said that he had died, this group believes that he has risen again. And as you come to worship, you are thankful for this community that you are experiencing. You are seeing people's lives transformed. People seem to be engaging with something. And to start with, when you heard Jesus' teachings, you had a chunk of questions. But now, now you're seeing these followers of his engage with his teaching and seeing them as transformed people. You just find the whole thing compelling. And so you've jumped in and you love the way that this community seems centered around these incredible concepts. There is hospitality. You have been welcomed into more meals in the last few weeks than you can remember at any point in your life. There is this solidarity. People are willing to stand up for you in this community. And you realize I'm part of something bigger as well. There is this mutuality that is just compelling. It isn't just about one person. It's about everybody. 
There's a humility that seems to be there as well. Not everybody has to be right all the time. They are people that are learning to live with their differences. And finally, maybe the most compelling thing is there is this incredible generosity. Just the other day, a man called Barnabas walked in with a box full of gold coins. He announced that he'd sold some land and he wanted to give it as a gift to the community. There was this moment where everybody applauded and everybody cheered and suddenly people that had been into town, that had come into town and had joined this community of faith that had no resources of their own, suddenly people have food to eat. There is food on the table because this man gave so generously. This is a community that is built on generosity and it's exciting to be a part of it. It is a community of transformed people. And as you begin to worship together as a group of people, there's a moment where a man named Ananias walks in to the meeting. He carries with him too a box of gold and he walks to where the apostles are leading the service at the front and carrying this box of gold, everyone begins to murmur. As he makes his way to the front, everybody stops and he loudly proclaims, I sold some land, here is the money from it. And everybody applauds and cheers this man who was given so generously. Then as the, the, the conversation, the murmurs stop, Peter, who's been leading this group of apostles, whispers just a few quiet words. Is that all of it, Ananias? Ananias responds indignantly, yes, of course, it's all of it. I sold the land and here is the money. And then Peter whispers a few more things that you can't quite catch. But then suddenly in the midst of this time of celebration and worship, Ananias, this man you have talked to, you have known, falls down dead. This is the story that Luke presents us with. A man comes into a community, not unlike this one, with a generous gift, with a large sum of money, presents it to the community, and at the end of the service, he is no longer living, he is now dead. Depending on your engagement with this story, you may feel multiple different things. You may feel if you're a church person who's been connected with a church community for a while, oh, This is the service where they talk to us about giving and money and all those kind of things. And and maybe you kind of nudge husband or wife and you're like, did you bring the checkbook this week? Because I forgot and all those different murmured conversations. Uh, Maybe there's a panic that we're going to have you write down how much you gave in the last month and you've got to hold up a sign that announces it to the community. And then maybe at the end of the service, after we've gone through this passage, you'll write a different number and (laughs) reveal it to the community. Maybe if you've been engaged with the church world for a while, there is somewhat of a panic that, of course, it's just about money and that's what we're going to land on today. Maybe if you're someone who would describe yourselves as de-churched or over-churched or lots of those words with churched and a prefix in front of them, maybe this, if you're honest, is one of the passages that is making you feel pushed away from the church, of organized religion of any kind. Maybe this is one of those passages where you look and say, how is this fair? And how is this right? The passage has a ton of tension in it because the name Ananias unbelievably means the Lord, God, is gracious. And you read this passage and you say, where's the grace in this? This is, this is all judgment. This is the fire and brimstone thing. How is this fair on these people? You think through the Old Testament, the older scriptures that we have, and you think of all the things that people do and live, and Ananias gives a gift of lots of money, and he's dead, and then his wife is dead with him. How does that seem fair? 
I suggest that a generous reading of Ananias and Sapphira is very similar to these two guys. These two guys, one of them is Daniel Radcliffe, not being Harry Potter at this point. Uh, this is Guildenstern and Rosencrantz from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Any of you that are familiar with the story, you may know these characters. They are bit characters, side characters. Hamlet, the hero, is melancholy. He is out of sorts, so his uncle, the king, who is really the bad guy, invites a couple of college pals to come and spend some time with him. They're supposed to cheer him up. So they arrive just on that principle, no pretensions, just to do what they are asked to do. But in the course of doing that, they start to realize this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for them to gain significance. This is an opportunity for them to become wealthy. So they enter into this story on behalf of this evil king and they begin to try and work all these, in all these systems. They realize kind of quickly that they are playing checkers when everybody else is playing chess. They are out of their list. Some of you are like, that's, that's work, that's life for me. I feel like that all the time. But these guys feel it particularly in this moment. They are guys that enter into the story, think they are playing a significant part, and find that they're just being manipulated by everybody else. They are playing catch-up, and they end up stood in front of the King of England with a note that they believe says, reward these men, give them lots of gold, and the note actually says, kill these men, and they end up with nooses around their neck. The English playwright Tom Stoppard took these two characters and wrote a whole play just from their perspective, and as they stand there with the nooses around their neck, they kind of look at each other and say, how did, how did this happen? Where did we go wrong? Like, what, what did we do? They are caught up in this game that they don't really understand. A generous reading of Ananias and Sapphira would say the same about them. They have got involved in a story that is bigger than they realize, and they end up somewhat as the victims of it. And yet there's a manipulation to how they go about it that suggests that, that maybe they do know more than Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Maybe there isn't that innocence there. And that while the story to us as Westerners may seem unfair to many other people, they would say it is fair. Much of the rest of the world would say that the community itself is far more significant than the individual. And if an individual has to pay a price for the community to survive, that's, that's good and right. We have this view of the individual's rights that says, no, it's not fair because they deserve better than this. And yet, that's a tension that many other people would question. Maybe you look at this story from the perspective of someone who's very unchurched. Maybe you've never really considered Jesus before. Maybe you look at this story and say, why does it even matter? Why does the death of a couple of people a couple of thousand years ago matter? How can it impact us today? And, and do those kind of things even really happen? Does God act like that in the world, depending on your connection with church, you may have all sorts of different reactions. So, so let's start with that question. Why does this story matter? What can we learn from it? So if anything, at least on the surface, this story pushes us in a specific direction. When you read the Christian scriptures, what, what you tend to get a picture of is this. The, there are levels in which God is close and imminent, that he longs to be our friend. And that's good and right. And yet there are other passages, other writings that would suggest God is high and holy and distant and unapproachable. Now, if you've been involved in the church world for any length of time, you may have observed that different churches tend to trend to one end of the spectrum or another. And, and that's probably because we're spectrum people. 
I, I would like to believe I sit in the middle, the reasonable middle of every discussion and every argument. But that's a very naive point of view. The reality is I'm just not self-aware enough to see my own lens. And so there are political spectrums. We tend to go one side or the other side. There's lots of different spectrums out there. In the church world, there is a spectrum between what you might call the imminence of God and the eminence of God. If you want easier language, God is nigh, he is close, he is a friend. On the other side, God is high, he is distant, he is holy, he is to be revered. And it would seem that those two things aren't compatible. How can you get close to someone who is so far above you? And yet the Christian story has said over and over again that Jesus is the answer to how that might work in practice. If you think about the shape of a cross, you have an up beam that might reach out, reach upwards as God is holy. God has high standards. God is distant in that respect, far above us. And then you have a cross beam that reaches out and that might reflect that God loves us, that he is all embracing, that he longs to pull us in. And, and you might say that the cross is God's way of having his cake and eating it. He gets to be holy and keep that standard while embracing broken people like you and I. The intersection of the cross is where Jesus dies and that's what makes all of this possible. But, but inevitably, as followers of Jesus, we tend to trend to seeing God as close, gracious, intimate, or we tend to trend to see him as holy, distant, above. There is this need to find some balance there. And so as we sang that doxology, uh, you may have felt that moment where it suddenly felt like maybe the atmosphere feels a little different. There is a holiness and a reverence there. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, so to me, reverence was the normal. And I can remember engaging in services and prayer meetings where it felt like if I just reached out a hand, it would disappear through a veil between the physical and the spiritual world that I was touching something different. And yet you might say, I've never experienced anything like that in church. And some of your struggle with church might be just how unspiritual it is at times. We are called as followers of Jesus to land somewhere in the middle of that, that closeness and that holiness. We are called to have our cake and eat it in the same way that God gets to do that as well. If nothing else, maybe this passage is a reminder that God isn't just gracious, but he is also all of those other things as well. And, and if that's all we took, that might be a good thing. In Lamentations, as the Old Testament wrestles with this, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. What it is for a holy God to engage with humans, and yet there is also this compassion. And as Jesus teaches his followers to pray, he even uses this language. There is the language of Father, Abba, intimate, close. And there's the language of hallowed, distant, above, transcendent. If we took nothing else, that might be a good thing. And yet, I suspect that the story isn't just about whether you see God as holy or whether you see him as close and intimate. I would suggest there's a whole community aspect going on that is important in this story as well. Why does this story matter? To understand Acts chapter 5, the verses we just read, I don't think you can understand it without understanding what comes just before it. So we're going to jump back to Acts chapter 4 and, and just look at what was going on there. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 onwards, all the believers were of one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the feet of the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This community is made up of a lot of different people. There are people that live in Jerusalem, some of them whom are wealthy. There are people that have traveled in for the festival where Pentecost takes place and they have stayed and they have just the the food supplies they would need for a few days travel. And now they are there in Jerusalem with nothing really to their name. And and what we see is a community that comes together, that shares a community that, that really just takes everything and throws it into a common pot and it's available to all. And as you see it described, isn't there a sense that, wow, this is idyllic. This is incredible to, to see a community live on these terms. There are questions from secular writers about the New Testament. who They say Luke is, Luke is being unreasonable. Luke is writing about things that could never have taken place because how can a community be this good? And to enter into that idea, I'd like you just for a moment to use your imagination. I'm going to ask you this question. What does idyllic mean to you? If you can create the place and space that you want to create, what does it look like? Where is it? What, what's the landscape like? Is it ocean? Is it mountains? Is it boring flat plains of Kansas or Nebraska? Hey, it's your idyllic vision. You can pick whatever you like. What people are with you and what do you do? How do you function in that community? And most of us after a while can say, oh, it looks like that. I have this picture. Uh, some friends that were on honeymoon sent me this picture from the Amalfi Coast. I should say some former friends because they know I love the Amalfi Coast, so I'm now just not talking to them. I haven't talked to them since they, they sent me this picture, but I'm not resentful at all. But, but maybe that kind of starts to make you think, oh, I could be there for a while. There's this description in The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's description of the last homely house looks something like this. That house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house, whether you liked food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of all of them. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. Some of us are like, "Ah, let's go there for a while. That, That sounds good. A few years ago, I was working with a guy and he invited me over to his house. We were working on a project together and he was living with his parents at the time and so he gave me an address and I was looking for his house and simply couldn't find it. Eventually found this tiny trail that went away into some woodland and as you came around a corner, there was this incredible house in front of you that I later found that his dad built with his own two hands. It was stunning, beautiful and you walked through the door and everything was just laid out perfectly. He said, would you like a glass of water? I said, I don't really like well water, and I assume you run a well here. He said, no, we have this reverse osmosis system. I think you'll like it. And he came and handed me a glass of water that is still, to this day, the best glass of water I have ever enjoyed. And then we sat on his back porch for a while, and I looked as his mom and his dad played catch with his two younger siblings who they were homeschooling. Behind them, there was a lake with a small boat sitting floating on it. And I got kind of spooked by this place. I went back to the office and people said, what's wrong with you? Where have you been? I said, I think I went to Narnia or something like that anyway. I, I, I went to this place 
And, and people were different. No, different's not the word. Better. People were better than us in this space. There was something about it that was just beyond description. We have those moments that we think, this is idyllic, this is perfect, this is too good to be true. And as we read this story in Acts, we might say the same about it. Wow, I could go there for a while. This seems to be what community looks like. And take your vision for a second, your picture of what is perfect or what is idyllic. And let me ask you this question. What would you give to create that space or place? And what we read in the New Testament is that God gave incredible amounts to create this space and place. That this community came at incredible cost. It's a longed-for community. This is back in Deuteronomy 15. Imagine yourself as a Jewish person finally starting to engage with this Acts community and know that this passage has been important for a long time. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. This is a community that these Jewish people have been longing for, and now it's finally here. We are seeing a longed-for community, a community that cost a great deal to create, and a community that must now be treasured. Some philosophers have talked about how true beauty actually has an emotional quality to it. It actually has a sadness to it. Because you see something beautiful and compelling and you know it can't last forever. There is the potential of losing it. And we see this community that is beautiful and compelling and it has a sadness because what if this community becomes damaged or broken? If you could create your idyllic community, a second question is what would you do to save that space or place? Would any cost be too great to, to, to save this incredible community that you have created in your mind? And this is what we see with this early Acts community, I would suggest. We see a community that is beautiful, that is compelling, but is also at risk. Could also be lost in a moment because we are people. We are broken, even though we are transformed, even though we are changing, even though the message of Jesus is you have moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That is true in the moment that you started following him. There is still this constant transformation that takes place over years after years. And so we are still people that are flawed and broken. The, the Times of London once asked a question of all their readers, what is wrong in the world? And G.K. Chesterton, the English writer and philosopher, sent them a short note that just simply said this, Dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. That was all the note said. I am what is wrong with the world. So when you see broken people engage with the community, what does that look like? And here we see two examples of what it looks like to engage with this community. One person who does it well and another couple that seem like they don't. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Our first positive example is this man who experiences this community, sells all his land, and then comes and presents it. And if you have a house you want to sell and want to give the money, I have no arguments, no objections whatsoever. But don't feel any pressure because it seems like this was unusual. Barnabas is driven by what the community needs 
and what he feels called to give. He is driven by what the community needs and what he feels called to give. It's not just the need of the community. It's also how he engages with, questions, with God in, in questions and, and says, what, what is it that I'm called to share in this moment? He is a transformed person who longs to enter into the community with no strings attached. It seems like for Barnabas, he is engaged with this second principle that Jesus teaches in prayer. I talked about how Jesus, on one hand, recognizes that God is Father. On the other hand, recognizes that he is hallowed. The next part of the Lord's Prayer will say this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's this engagement with God that says, God, I long for your kingdom. But there's a tension with that passage because you have a kingdom as well. You have a kingdom. Now, now we may be uncomfortable with the language of kings, especially in a country that has a reputation for overthrowing benevolent kings uh, like George III, but the language is useful and important for us. The truth is we could translate kingdom as something like circle of influence, but it doesn't quite give it the same ring. There is something about the language of kingdom that recognizes that we have the potential to rule with some kind of power over those around us. Now, that is true if you're an employer who has staff. That is true if you're a parent that has a family. That is true over your friends. You have a circle of influence. You have a kingdom of your own, and to pray your kingdom come, your will be done, is essentially to pray, God, dethrone me from my own kingdom. You take this thing and you be the ruler of it. The truth of kings is there can only be one in a certain place and a certain space. What Barnabas seems to be able to do is he seems to be able to go all in on this kingdom, this community in Acts, to the extent that his own kingdom is now extinct, or at least he is no longer the ruler of it. Barnabas is our positive example of what it is to take everything that we have, the resources, the connections, the relationships, the, the property, and say, God, I, I am no longer the ruler of this thing. This is your thing. This is surrendered. And now we have Ananias, and I'll talk about Ananias, but really it's Ananias and Sapphira. They come to this as one thing. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also took a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Is Ananias generous with his money? I guess to an extent is yes. If anyone in our community came to me and said, I sold a piece of property, I sold a house, here's half of the money, I would say, wow, <laughs> that's an incredible gift to give. It seems like on the surface, when you look at it to start with, he doesn't do anything wrong at this point. He has some property, he sold it, and he gave a gift. It seems like that is to be celebrated. It seems like the core of what is wrong with Ananias is this. He isn't honest about it. He isn't honest about it. And ultimately, his kingdom is still his own. He still gets to decide. It seems like the undercurrent of this story is this. Ananias feels called to give it all, and yet he can't. He can't let go. 
He's still got this hold on his possessions and the truth is his possessions still have a hold on him. And now this is the hard part. This is potentially the unfair part. I would suggest that every single one of us are expected or called in following Jesus to take our possessions, everything that we own, all of our connections and hold them with an open hand. I believe that's what it is to say, I am no longer king of my own kingdom. But it can get unfair because you may get a different answer to anybody else as to what to do with your stuff. You could be sat here considering buying a third home in the mountains so you can spend weekends there. And God may say, that's a good thing. Do it. You could be thinking about buying a new couch to replace one that's 30 years old. And God might say, I have better use for that money. There is a tension there that it isn't always fair. What it is to walk with Jesus and no longer be king of our own kingdom is to take everything we own and say, this is your decision and it is no longer mine. It's to let go. It's to say, I'm no longer in charge of this. Ananias, I would suggest, is not all in on this kingdom and his own kingdom continues to thrive. But there's a problem with your own kingdom thriving, right? Because this kingdom that Jesus presents is an eternal kingdom. The kingdom you rule over is a temporary kingdom. The kingdom I rule over is a temporary kingdom. It lasts until that last breath. And it seems like engaging with this community, Ananias continues to keep his own kingdom, but it doesn't last very long at all. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. I would suggest Ananias is driven by what the community sees and how much he can hold back. He is an untransformed person who longs to keep his kingdom while receiving the adoration of Jesus' kingdom. It would be fine to say Ananias, for Ananias to say, I can't go that far. I'm going to keep some of it. I can be generous to a point. I feel I need to care for my family's security. I'm going to hold some of it back. It seems like that would be fine, but he longs, longs, longs for the community to do for him what it did for Barnabas. It long, he longs to be celebrated by this community for his generosity, but it isn't real. He wants to have his cake and eat it, to use that same phrase. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. And that language of buried him, this is the only time in Acts that this is used of a follower of Jesus. In actual fact, the New Testament is very determined in celebrating the death of a follower of Jesus as a good thing. It's the same way that Paul wrestles with, do you know what? I'd really like to go and be with Jesus, but it's good for you guys that I stick around for a while. At no point in Acts is the death of a follower of Jesus seen as a sadness, as a loss, except at this point. This is the only time that that language is used of someone who passes away who is following Jesus. This is a loss. This is brokenness. And about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. 
Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At this moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. There's so much symmetry here with the Garden of Eden. There is a man and a woman and they deceive together. They are in it together. And now there is a new creation and a new thing that God is doing. And there is a man and a woman and they become deceptive together and their story becomes broken. There is this new community that needs protecting. And what happens to that idyllic community that we looked at if this becomes its story? If this is okay, if this is now acceptable? Somewhere in this, it seems that God is protecting and nurturing this little community that truly is an incredible community. And that seems to be the justice of the story. This is a story about the corporate and the community. It's not about the individual. It's the community that what matters. So here comes the difficult question. What do we learn from this? Because it's not just give more money or something like that. There's so much going on in this story about community. What do we learn? What do we take away? And I think for me, it's a confession. It's a confession that looks like this. I am Ananias. I, in so many ways, am Ananias. Community costs me. And at times, I run from it. Community costs me, and at times I run for it, from it. Think about those five words that I gave you early that, that we sketched out as some of the beauty of this community. Hospitality means I will welcome you in, but at times I don't want to. Solidarity means I will lift you up, but at times I don't want to do that. Mutuality means I need you and yet I want to believe I can do it all myself that I'm okay. Humility means I could be wrong and I don't like to be wrong. And generosity means I bring what I can. And yet so much of the time, like Ananias, I long to collect my stuff and hold it near because I will be better for it. Community costs me because it costs me my kingdom that at times I am not very good at surrendering. At times I feel like I've surrendered and at times I raise my flag again and declare myself king again and it seems to be part of who I am. It seems to be this constant wrestling and constant battle. I am Ananias. Community costs me and I run from it and yet at the same time, just like Ananias, community compels me. Because there is something incredible about this picture that is created that says to me, even at the cost it comes at, I want more of that thing. That is magical. And these people aren't just different, they're better than me. This is Narnia and I long for it. I long for that idyllic picture that we are given. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Just the tension in that passage is incredible. It is compelling, but it comes at an incredible cost and it comes with some chaos. I was once listening to a sermon from a church who simply took a load of buckets and put them out at the front of the church. And then they said, if you've got more than you need, come and put money in it. And if you've got less than you need, come and take money out of it. 
People wrote checks and put no name on them, and people came and saw an amount they needed and wrote their own name in the payee column. Think about the chaos in that, and yet this is essentially what this group of people did. They shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and you wonder how much the great power they were able to do with this was connected to the type of community they had become. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that they, there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone who had need. Community comes at a cost, but it is also compelling because it, of what it offers us who are so often broken and needy people. Hospitality is the potential that I I, with all my flaws, all my faults, am invited in anyway. Solidarity means that in the moments that I am weak, there is someone there who will lift me up, who will help me to walk. Mutuality means that I, 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 with all my limitations, I am needed and that the community is less than it could be without me. Humility means that if you could be wrong, there's a possibility for once in my life I could be right, And that seems something worth celebrating. And generosity means that, yes, the cost is I bring what I can, but generosity means that I might be able to receive what I need. This is this picture that this New Testament community creates, and it is wonderful. It is idyllic, but it comes at a cost. My suggestion is this, that we need to be people who choose to commit even when it costs. And this isn't me giving like the speech about you must commit to South. It means that you and I need community somewhere, wherever that is. And my longing for you is that you find that community somewhere and in some place that works for you, that gives you this thing because you need it and I need it. Some questions as I invite the worship team to come back. Some things that you may ponder. I'm going to give you these five different words all ending in itty again. Um, I liked the common ending. Here's some questions and pick one. Take it home with you. Ponder it. Hospitality. Who will you invite in? Solidarity. Who can you lift up? Mutuality. How can you play a part? Humility, how can you listen? Generosity, what can you bring? Maybe as you pray, the Spirit will whisper to you that one of those things is the thing for you. Maybe there's a brave and bold step to take that you haven't taken before. I don't need to tell you what it is. You need to be able to listen, and I need to be able to listen. We get to choose to commit, even when it costs. God, as we worship, as we ponder, may you challenge us. Thank you for the picture of incredible Christian community, of what it looks like to follow Jesus well together. To the extent that South looks like that, we celebrate. To the extent it doesn't, we long for it. May we reach that longed-for community that we see in this early church. It may not look exactly like it, but may it find those common heartbeats, those common ways of being. May we as individuals learn what it is to walk in the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. 
But may we recognize that we do that best in community. However you want to speak, would you speak as we sing together? Thank you that you are the God who is both holy and high, but you come close and near. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.